0: And also, if you'll open your bulletins, and you'll see the piece of white folded paper there, and those are sermon notes, and have many of the verses that we'll be walking through in there, and that will be helpful to you in following along. If you're visiting with us again, I want to welcome you. We have been walking through a study of the minor prophets, and we are now at the in the book of Micah. We're going to be dealing with the entire book this morning. I saw that the saints don't play at noon, so I figured we have pretty much the whole afternoon. Uh, the, The main point that we want to see in Micah this morning is that despite the sin of God's people, He will restore them and He will make His glorious salvation known. Read that again for you. Despite the sin of God's people, He will restore them and make His glorious salvation known. The name of Micah. This will come into play later in the book. But the name of Micah means who is like God. Who is like God. This fan is blowing my pages. I'm going to turn this just a little bit. (laughs) There we go. And the time period that that Micah is preaching in, that he's teaching in, is very important. It's 735 to approximately 700 B.C. Now, it's in 722 that the kingdom of northern Israel, the kingdom of Israel will be destroyed by Assyria. And so as Micah comes and he brings this prophecy, and it is in a very real and practical time to the people of Israel. One of the kingdoms is going to be destroyed. And the southern kingdom, the destruction is coming soon. So Micah will witness this downfall of the northern kingdom. This whole southern kingdom of Judah will witness this as well. And Micah is preaching to the, Jude, uh, the southern kingdom of Israel to repent of their sins. And much in Micah, much like Amos and other minor prophets, we see God's people walking in rebellion. Walking in rebellion against him. And he brings a prophet delivering this threat of judgment. As we begin this morning, I'm not going to ask you to stand as we normally do because we're going to skip around a little bit, but I do want you to get an idea of what this message of Micah was all about. So I'm going to ask you to just follow along with me. We're going to begin in chapter 1 of Micah, read verses 1 through 5, and then we'll we'll move around a little bit. So let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Micah. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now remember, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom, the capital of Judah. He says in verse 2, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Look with me to verses 10 through 12. In the same chapter. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in beth Roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zenon will do not come out. The lamentation of Beth-Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Meroth will anxiously, wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord. To the gate of Jerusalem. Now all these places, I wanted to give you just an idea of what's going on in Micah. And these places, if you just read them, could sound very confusing. But Micah is being very, very intentional. What he's saying here about these places, these are, these are word plays. For instance, the place that we mentioned, Bethlehephra, it, it means a house characterized by dust. And what's going to happen is the people there are going to roll in the dust and defeat and humiliation as they are defeated by the Assyrian armies. Also, the people of Shafir. The name means a beauty town. It will, these people will pass on their way in nakedness and shame. The exact opposite of what the name means, beauty. The people of Zanon, which means to go forth. The very word means to go forth. But what God's going to do to them because of their sin is they will not be able to go out. They will be destroyed. And so what we see in Micah is the people have sinned. God has seen their sin. And God is coming and he's threatening to destroy them. Now look with me at chapter 2. Verses 1 through 3. Let's get specific about the sins that Micah was seeing that God saw in Israel and Judah. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. You see, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, have ignored the law that God gave them. God gave them the law that said to care for other people, to show justice and love towards their neighbor. But what the people have done instead, particularly the people who have any sense of power, is they have gone and they've taken the lands of other people, particularly of the poor. They've shown injustice, exactly the opposite of what God commanded them to do. So... God will destroy them. As we read these things, in the minor prophets throughout, we see much of the same thing. God's people have been disobedient. God is bringing destruction. Now, this might sound severe to many of you. It may sound severe to Christians, and it probably really sounds severe to those of you in the room who don't know much about the Bible, who may not believe this. But here's what you need to know about God. Here's what we need to be reminded of as we read the Minor Prophets. We need to be reminded of the nature of sin and the nature of God. God is holy. We've just sung about this. God is mighty, He's powerful, and He is loving. But sin is an affront to God's character, it's a rejection of His Lordship and it's a rejection of His love. And what happens in sin is it just leads to death. The natural result of sin is it leads to death. It leads to destruction. Where sin exists as a dominant influence in a person's life or in a society, death, destruction will come. Look at history. This is what happens. When a society becomes corrupt, it will lead to destruction. Destruction. It may take a long time, but it will come. And the same thing will happen to your life. If you seek sin, if it's the dominant characteristic of your life, if you don't seek God, you will die. You will perish. It is the way God has created the earth. Sin brings destruction. And so while you may find these things harsh, we need to be reminded of what sin is, and we need to be reminded of who God is. This is what happens to those who seek evil. To the wicked, there will be destruction. So I hope that the book of Micah is a reminder to us. I hope that as we study the minor prophets, and sometimes we we hear this, we've been hearing this for the last several Sundays, a lot. But I hope it's a reminder to you. And I hope it encourages you to humbly seek the Lord. If it brings salvation, it's worth it. It is God's word and it is intended to speak to us. So, as we look at the book of Micah, the question we want to ask is, what does God want? If God's people are seeking evil and they're going to be destroyed by God, we need to ask, what is it God does want? What is it he wants from us? And what does he want to do? What are his intentions And so the first thing we see, you can look at this in your notes, God wants wrongs to be rebuked, especially among his people. God wants wrongs to be rebuked, especially among his people. This is very important to us, especially in a culture where we're so influenced by this thought of tolerance. That tolerance is the highest virtue of all society. That we need, what we need to do is acknowledge other people, care for them in whatever they think, in whatever they believe. That thought infiltrates the church to where we begin to think what we need to do is just tolerate those that we go to church with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We don't need to confront them. We simply need to tolerate what they believe and the way they want to walk. How has this influenced the church? God wants wrongs to be rebuked, not to be tolerated. As you look in your notes, you see, and as we look in Micah, shows us that God wants prophets, preachers who preach truth. You see, even in the day of Micah, Religion was prevalent. People loved a good sermon. But they wanted a specific type of sermon. They wanted a sermon that would tickle their ears, not convict. But God desires prophets who preach truth. Look at chapter 2, verses 6-11. through There's this conversation going on here between these prophets who are preaching falsehood and the prophets who are preaching truth, particularly Micah. And so beginning in verse 6, it says, "...do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? This is the standard of preaching. Listen closely. Do the words of the preacher do good to those who are walking in righteousness?" That is the standard we should hold to. Look at verse 8. But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go for this is no place to rest. Because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher of this people. Micah, in contrast to these false prophets who tell them that everything's going to be okay, he rebukes evil. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. Micah says in chapter 3, verse 8, Ask for me. I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. While the other prophets and the priests in this area would be influenced by money, Micah was only influenced by the truth. The truth of God's law and the truth of what God was saying would happen. Look at verse 11 of the same chapter. It says, its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Congregation, cross point. I hope you know that one of the God's greatest gifts to his church is preachers and teachers who speak truth. Don't tell you what you want to hear But tell you what God's word says And tell you what you need to hear Preachers who preach what you want to hear Will do no good to you They will bring no benefit to you But those who preach what you may not want to hear Things that might be unsettling Things that may force you To think through your life And reorganize everything about the way you live This will bring eternal benefit to you I'm not saying this because I'm standing up here. I'm saying this because this is what the Word teaches us and because we know that when we walk in sin, as we've seen is happening to Israel, it only ends in destruction, death. And so one of the greatest gifts God can give to His church is ministers who preach truth, who confront you in your sin, who come to you personally and rebuke evil. But the problem is it's not just preachers and teachers who need to be the ones speaking truth. It's all God's people. We're all responsible for speaking truth. We could be called a community of truth, truth speaking. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 15 and 23. These are in your notes. Paul says, speaking to the entire body. At Ephesus, he says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Look, this is the way we grow mature in Christ. As we speak truthfully to one another. As we speak honestly, faithfully about God's word and about the things of God. And verse 23 Paul says therefore having put away falsehood let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members one of another believers are you holding back are you holding back something that could be a benefit to a brother or sister in this body If you speak truth, it can only be of benefit. Even if they run from it, you've been faithful. But if they repent, you've gained this brother or sister. It's a benefit fit to the entire body. Listen, we are called to speak truth to one another. And as we speak truth to one another in this community of faith, that is how we are built up into maturity in Christ. This is the method Paul gives. It's not enough for Christians to simply not tell a lie. That's what Paul said there, forsaking lying. It's not enough just to forsake lying. We must also speak the truth. Parents, are you teaching your children not just to not lie, but also to speak honestly, to speak lovingly, faithfully? This is what the body is called to do. A pastor friend once said, when we don't confront sin and speak truth, we exalt tolerance as the highest virtue. Is tolerance the highest virtue in our community? When you go out into society, do you exalt tolerance as the highest virtue? Among your coworkers, among your neighbors, those you interact with, students, among people that you interact with, your friends, do you affirm them and their belief that tolerance is all we need? Society doesn't, life doesn't work that way. In God's world, we are required to speak truth to one another. We are required to speak God's truth. And this is what God desired of his people. He wanted wrongs rebuked. He wanted prophets who preached truth. And he wanted people who respond to truth. People who respond to truth. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the nation of Israel, you ought to know what is just, yet you hate what is good and love what is evil. You flay my people's skin and rip the flesh from their bones. You devour my people's flesh. You strip off their skin and crush their bones. You chop them up like flesh in a pot, like meat in a kettle. Now this makes, it does sound extremely brutal. And it may not have been these people directly performing these things, but by their oppression and lack of care of God's people, inevitably they were guilty. They were guilty. They were responsible. And what God's saying is, you had the opportunity to know justice. These people of Israel had the law. They had God's words. And so of all people in this society, these people should have been the ones who were enforcing justice. But instead, they were hating it. They wouldn't respond to truth because evil brought too much benefit. They had a love of self that overruled their conscience and care for others. The same can happen to us. If we receive benefit from some evil, we might begin to love that more than we love God. We might begin to love that more than we love justice and doing right. Chapter 6, verse 12. God says, your rich men are full of violence, your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Again, they're not speaking truth to one another. God desired, desired people who would respond to the truth, but instead they continued in their evil. In chapter 6 of verse 8, this is the most popular verse probably of all the book of Micah. God says, or Micah says from the Lord, He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? I want to bring out this point even more. You see, justice has been an issue that's come up in some form in practically all of the minor prophets that we've studied. And I I hope that one day we as a church can do a, a full survey of biblical justice. But suffice it to say for today that Biblical justice is not just this negative sense of of, of a criminal getting what they deserved. That's not all God is speaking of here, and that's often what we think of when we think of justice. A courtroom setting, someone who's done wrong, and the judge giving them what they deserved. But that's not what God is talking about. It also has a positive connotation, which all the people were to be provided for. You see, God required of his people to put systems in place which would prevent other people from being trampled on even the year of jubilee meant those who had fallen on hard times and had to sell their fields they would have their fields returned and their debts fully forgiven god had placed these systems within the people of israel so that all people would be taken care of all people would be shown love and kindness and generosity But instead, the people of Israel had rejected these laws. They saw that they could get benefit if they took and kept those fields. The people in power had gone to those who were poor, and they had taken their fields for themselves. This justice was very much a part of the ministry of Jesus too. He said, standing up in the temple one day, God has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. You see, Jesus was all about caring for those who were oppressed, for those who needed help. This was also intended to be a part of the ministry of the early church. If you read Galatians, there's this one little verse where it says that Paul was to care for the poor, the thing that he was eager to do. Eager to do. And now at this stage of history, it's the responsibility of all of us to be salt and light in a land of rotting morality. And so the question is, are we standing up for the cause of the poor? Like Israel, we should be a people, a community of faith who helps to create systems of justice and love. This is something I've wrestled with through the Minor Prophets. Probably the, most big, the biggest thing that I've wrestled with. And I want to ask you, church. Do you think that you are just in all your dealings? Are you caring for the oppressed in some way? Are you aware of injustice around you? And what influence can you have? These can be very simple things. People who aren't being loved, who aren't being cared for. There are many in our community, our people I know that are caring for children who aren't really being cared for. But I want to ask you, all of you, are you doing something? This is a subject that we need to personally and corporately study much more because one of the main reasons the people of Israel were being judged is because they didn't care for people. They didn't care for people. And I fear that this could be one of the greatest tragedies, the greatest sins in the church today. It's not about just giving a buck to the guy on the corner. It's about creating sustainable systems in which these people can get out of poverty. This requires us to rearrange our lives. It threatens our comfort. But it is something that is a priority to God. And should be a priority to us. So. What did God want? God wanted prophets who preached truth. And he wanted a people who would respond to truth. We also learn in Micah. What happens when people don't listen to God. First God will stop speaking. In chapter 3 verses 4 through 7. He's speaking of these prophets. Who are not speaking rightly. About what God has said. In verses 4-7 through it says, Then they will cry to the Lord, but He will not answer them. He will hide His face from them at that time, because they have made their deeds evil. God will hide His face. Thus the Lord, concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, He says, Those who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against Him who puts nothing into their mouths, therefore it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. Christian, if God is speaking to you and you continue to disobey, continue to resist, God might stop speaking to you. Those of you who haven't become a believer, that you haven't listened to God, but you sense God pulling at your heart, if you continue to resist, there will be a day when God says no more. And he will speak no more. This is what happens when we don't listen to him. Also, we'll be dissatisfied. Turn with me to chapter 6, verses 13 through 15. God says of his people, therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. There shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine, fruit. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab and walked in their counsels. What God is saying is you've rebelled against me. And because of this, all the work that you try to do will no longer bring any sense of satisfaction. You will always be dissatisfied, seeking more, seeking more, but never finding what you want. Never finding what you want. This is what happens when we rebel against God and we don't listen to Him we will be miserable in our dissatisfaction. I love the quote from Augustine. I've shared this before with you, but I think it's so practical. Augustine said, Augustine wrestled for a number of years, resisting God, resisting God, seeking other forms of life. And finally, in his early 30s, was willing to bow down to the Lord. And in his spiritual autobiography, is what many call it, he said this, You have made us for thyself so that our hearts are weary until they find their rest in you. You have made us for thyself, so that our hearts are weary until they find their rest in you. Do you see that God has so designed you, that the only full satisfaction you will ever find is in Him? There is no material thing, there is no person, there is nothing that you will ever find complete satisfaction in, except God. He has made you for him so that you find your rest in all that you are in him. And if you try to find it in other places, you'll continue, continue to find yourself in a spiral of dissatisfaction. Miserable, angry at other people, taking it out on other people when God just wants you to bow to him. This is what would happen to God's people. As we move on, the next main thing we see that God wants is He wants His people to be restored. If you're visiting with us, if you haven't been with us during our study of the Minor Prophets, during every one we see a section on what we call eschatological hope. Eschatological simply means in times. In times, these minor prophets began to see that there was no hope for God's people unless God intervened in some way. If God did not intervene, the entire people would be destroyed. The minor prophets were realizing this. And so, as they're giving their message, God revealed to them the future hope that the God, God's people would not be left to destruction. That he would come, and he would restore them, he would rescue them, and so we see God wants his people to be restored, but in one sense we as we 're going through the book, the message is always to god 's people, a large group that are considered god 's people, even these ones who were wicked and who were disobeying God were in a sense they were part of Israel, they were considered god 's people, so when we ask who Who's going to be restored? We need to be very clear. Is God going to restore these people who were wicked? These people who were oppressing others? What's his plan for them? And so the first question we need to ask as we look at God's intention to restore is who really is a part of God's people? Look at chapter 2 verses 3 through 5. just 3 through 5. You have one of these verses in your notes. And I put it there so that you would be somewhat startled. Because it, you know, it's funny that they write this in Hebrew. Then when they translate it to English, it still doesn't make sense sometimes. It's really interesting. We still have to really just dig and make sense of it. And so I want to make, hopefully make sense of this this morning. Beginning in verse 3. Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be, be a time of disaster. And that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. This is the wicked who are calling out when God is destroying them. And they say to an apostate, God gives our field. Verse 5, Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. You see... Having land in Israel meant being a part of God's people. We studied Joshua a little while back, and when the Israelites came into the promised land and began to take it, destroying these other people groups, they came in, and when they came into the promised land, Joshua, you remember, divided the land. Having a piece of property in the promised land meant you were a part of God's people. But look at what happens to these people who were wicked. Who are oppressive. In verse 5, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. What God is saying is, these who are wicked will one day have no right to anything in the promised land of Israel. In other words, they will no longer be a part of God's people. They are not a part of God's people. So, who is not involved in this, in this restoration? It's not the wicked. It's not these wicked ones. But look at chapter 4 with me. Chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. We will see who will have part, who will have a share. Beginning in verse 6, it says in chapter 4, And that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. The first group of people we see who are part of God's future people, those who will be restored, are this, this group of meek people this group who would have been despised by these powerful people in Israel. It says that God's, I will restore these. I will make these the remnant. And then in chapter 7, verses 8 through 9. We see another group. We could call them the humble This group says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall. I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against Him. Until He pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon His vindication. We see these two groups... These meek ones, and also these, again, very meek, humble people, the ones who bow to the Lord, who call out for His grace and mercy, these are the ones that He makes His remnant. And these verses are remarkably similar to the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. Remarkably similar. Listen to these verses from Matthew chapter 5. You don't have to turn there. For they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see the assignment that God has given us on this earth. To make disciples of all nations. To live righteously, justly, in a kind and generous way. Sometimes just results in pain and difficulty. It should always look like humility. And Jesus said to these, I will give the inheritance. These are my people. These are the ones who will receive the reward. And so these back in Micah who have suffered under these who are harsh, these who are unjust, God will bring them in and he will create a remnant. And so the first thing we see in God wanting his people to be restored is we see who his people are those who call out to him, who trust in him. But we also need to see how will he restore them. Micah gives us hints of this, of the hope for us. Look at chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. I know you're flipping around a lot, thank you. Look at verses 2 through 5. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. As we look at these passages, as we look closely, the mention of Bethlehem reminds the hearers, reminds us of God's promise to establish the kingdom of David forever. You see, the kings after David had all been wicked, and even David in his own way failed. And if there's one thing that God's people saw, it was that no person could rightly rule God's people except God. (laughs) Except God. No king could be good enough except Yahweh. And so as he speaks of Bethlehem, they're reminded of this promise that God will continue this line through David. He would establish it forever. His being from ancient of days. It said he is one from ancient of days. It connects him to everlasting God. You see, he shall be in the line of David, but he shall not be just like David. Not a mere man, but he is connected to God everlasting he will be a shepherd. He'll make his sheep dwell secure. And it says he shall be their peace. I want to ask you when you get home today or sometime this week to read John chapter 10. Write that down. Read John chapter 10. Right now I want to read to you two verses from this chapter. Jesus. This is verses 14 through 15. Jesus says, I Am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life for the sheep. If we look other places, we know that He doesn't just lay His life down for the sheep, but He also raises His, He is raised again. And he now is your peace. This is how God restores his people. He sends himself. He sends his son. And through him he brings you peace. I want to ask you. Congregation. Visitor. Do you have peace? This is ultimate peace. Jesus, the Lamb of God, the one that He intends for you, He is your peace. He is your forgiveness, salvation forevermore. This is the only way God restores His people. It's through His Son. It's through His Son. So, the next thing we see that God wants is He wants His character to be known. You see, it's not just about your restoration. While that is great to God, we are not the center of God's universe. His character is. It is who he is. God wants his character to be known in all his saving acts and all that he does. There are many ways that we could label these points. And so uh, all these are kind of together in some sense, but I've labeled them his power and his wisdom, and then his salvation. So look with me at where God wants his character to be known. Chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. God says, speaking about his people, the one that he has as his remnant. He says, many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. That he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I will make your horn iron. And I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. And shall devote their gain to the Lord. Their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. What God is saying is that. Israel was always being threatened with total defeat. After the northern kingdom was defeated by Assyria, the southern kingdom would be defeated by Babylon. That's what Micah is speaking of. Even a hundred years before it, Micah is speaking of the southern kingdom being defeated by Babylon. And there was always a chance, a good chance, that the total nation of Israel could be completely destroyed and that other people would take over that land. But what God says is, they don't know my plans. I will keep you. I will preserve you. This small nation... That everyone else wanted to destroy. God says. They don't know my plans. Those nations shall be destroyed. And I will preserve my people. I will preserve my people. So. Do you ever feel outnumbered or overwhelmed? Because Israel did. God's putting his glory on display. You see while we as believers. We may feel like a minority here. God is putting his wisdom, his power on display. The nations don't understand his plans. How do we make sense of the minority Christian groups being horribly treated by governments in different parts of the world? How do we make sense of when we as believers, while we think and we know that we know the truth, we're ignored or maybe even despised in our social settings, among friends, among coworkers? How do we make sense of this? 1 Corinthians one twenty seven. This is in your notes. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You see, in all these things, while His people may be the minority, and they're always on the verge of being beaten, it looks like from the outside, God is putting His power and His wisdom on display that He will bring victory, that He will defeat all evil, and He will preserve His people. He will preserve you. It is part of His character. It's not just about you. It's who God is. And God cannot lie. He's always faithful to Himself. So are you trusting in yourself? That God will preserve you because of you? Or are you trusting in who God is? This is His character. He is faithful. He is powerful. And He is all wise. God wants His power and wisdom to be known. He will be glorified in this. But also, and where we will conclude, God wants his salvation to be known. God wants his salvation to be known. Look at chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him? And what happened for Shittim to Gilgal? That you may know the saving acts of the Lord. What God is calling His people to do here is to always look to the past and to remember how He has been faithful all along. As you may doubt, as you may struggle, will God be faithful to me? Is God going to take care of me? What He wants you to always know is He's always been faithful in the past and so He will always be faithful in the future. He will be faithful now. He will be faithful forever. He is the God of salvation for all time. Do you have a spiritual autobiography where you count God's work in your life? This is what God was calling his people to do. Look to the past to how I've worked in your personal history, in the history of your nation. I want to encourage you, even this week, this week, to write down where God's been faithful to you in the past. Write down, tell your story, no matter how long it's been and the things that he's done. Write them down. And when you become discouraged, go back. Read. God is always a God of salvation. He's always a God of of faithfulness. And he wants you to always remember this. And so I want to encourage you personally this week to go and write down where God's been faithful in your life. If you can't remember anything, then there are some problems that you need to talk to someone about. If you can't see where God's ever been faithful to you, then you need to talk to a strong believer, someone you respect, because there are issues there. God wants his character to be known, his power, wisdom, his salvation. This is where where we close. Look at chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. You'll remember that I told you at the beginning that Micah's name means who is like God. Who is like God? Look at verses 18 through 20 with me. Who is a God like you? Micah says. Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. You see, even this remnant is not perfect. They're not perfect people. But God is gracious. He is a God of salvation and he forgives them. He does not retain his anger forever. Because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. As we close, who is a God like this? Of all you're putting hope in, Is it anything like this, God? This is a God of great salvation, of great forgiveness, of all peace. Are you putting your hope in this God, in this God? You see, God wanted, God wanted his these wrongs rebuked. He wanted wrongs rebuked in this community. He wanted his people to be restored. But he wants his character to be known. This is the character that we should be worshiping. And this is the character that we should be proclaiming. That he is a God of all grace. Of all mercy and all forgiveness. And his son Jesus Christ. He comes. He dies. He sheds his blood. That your sins might be wiped away. That you might be restored. That you might have perfect peace. And that you might walk with him forever. Are you walking in sin? Are you living in anxiety? This is a God of all comfort. Are you living in doubt? This is where you find rest. I encourage you every day, every moment of your life, do you bow and do you praise the one who pardons all iniquity? the one who is all your rest you find comfort you find everything in this god and this god i want to ask stephanie to come forward and as she does this is a time of response